days or something. So it's just it's kind of condensed, but so keep your eyes peeled for that. Tonight, Great Heroes of Faith, Part 2, and we'll pick up in verse 4 here in the book of Hebrews. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this time tonight in your word. And Lord, I know for me it's just been a message you've been preaching to my very heart this week, and that's just I need more faith, Lord. The substance of things hoped for and yet not seen as we saw last time. Lord, we need to be able to trust you with, with everything and anything. And, Lord, we're so thankful for the role that these great men, women of faith played, Lord, in in setting the foundation stones for how we are to conduct ourselves while we're on this earth. And, Lord, they didn't have a lot of certainty. They didn't have a lot of surety. They weren't the brightest of the bunch. Lord, they had all kinds of character flaws, and yet we find their names here in the book of Hebrews as those who knew you and loved you and we're blessed of you and called the friend of God. And so, Lord, we want that for us, for this church, for your church around the world. Lord, even for our community as we reach out for this mountain. We pray that you would bless us now as we study. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 4 here in the book of Hebrews. And it says, the first of all of these, and I want you to understand that this is the first person who is, in essence, put in the hall of faith, is Abel. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. And by faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. And so it begins with the picture of Abel. And it's interesting because your life as a Christian is largely comprised of unseen truths. There are things that you can't actually fully explain. They're not things you can draw little nice diagrams of. You can't PowerPoint them. Uh, they're not things that are easily expressed even in the English language to some degree. And if you don't believe that, go look at the theology section in any library. People have struggled for thousands of years trying to study God's character and God's nature, the essence of God's promises, and all of those things that we would say we understand about God, the role of faith in our lives is preeminent. It is one of the key stones of your walk with the Lord. And to the extent that your faith grows, so grows your walk and your life with the Lord. You you can be saved, but you cannot be saved without faith. You can walk, but you won't walk very far without faith. You can battle, but you won't battle much without faith. All of the things that we do as a Christian require a measure of faith. They're they're not just simply formulas. They're, They're not words of wisdom. They require an element of understanding at the heart level that is the essence of those things which we cannot see, and yet we know to be true. And so first here is Cain, or Abel, excuse me, not Cain. Cain's dead now and unfortunately paying for his problems. Abel's faith was demonstrated in the Old Testament. And if you remember, Cain and Abel were the first sons of Adam and Eve. 
And, and as they were brought into this world, you have Cain, who's a farmer, and you have Abel, who's a sheep herder. Basically, you have one who's, you know, makes wonderful flower arrangements and nice fruit baskets, and you got the other one who's kind of the dirty, smelly one. Now, when you look at those two people, and you realize that not a whole lot is said about those two sacrifices, if you re- read the account there in Genesis chapter 4, you're not going to find a lot of information. And I've heard an awful lot of extrapolated stories about one or the other of these two brothers and or both. And quite frankly, we don't get that from Scripture. They're simply guesses. They're they're theologic extrapolations of what we do see there. But the only thing that we do know is one was a farmer and the other one was a rancher. And so you got one in, that was heavily involved with plants and the other one heavily involved with animals. And so when you look at it, there's really not a lot to, to favor either one. There, there wasn't one that actually stuck out. And the reason that that is important is God plays favorites with no one. It wasn't like his decision to accept one sacrifice and not the other was based on his like for nice fruit baskets. It wasn't based on the fact that, you know, here, here Abel has a, a, you know, a nice fat sheep. It, it didn't have anything to do with any of those things. So what was it that was the essence of why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and didn't accept Cain's? And I would say to you, there's exactly one thing that stands out, and it's the role of faith. And, and faith causes us to do something that we don't like to do. And it's a horrible word that begins with O. And it's to be obedient. Faith causes us to be obedient. Because there's a lot of things in God's word that, quite frankly, I don't like what it says. There, there's things in God's word that when I look at it, it's just like, I wish that didn't say that. Occasionally, I'd like to be able to, you know, be able to be jealous of somebody else's stuff. I don't, you know, at times I look at it, I go, is it really wrong to, to want someone else's, you know, car or their boat? or you know, It's covetousness. We know that Scripture says we're not supposed to be covetous. Amen? It takes faith to believe that, because if you don't walk in that, ultimately you start desiring after things that become God, and then ultimately you're not no longer serving the Lord. So it takes a measure of faith to be obedient. And so it appears that what happened in the story of Cain and Abel is that regardless of what it looks like from the outside, because quite frankly, Cain's sacrifice probably looked better. I'm guessing that a slaughtered lamb compared to a nice, you know, basket of grapes or whatever it was, you know, a a wonderful flower arrangement, I am almost assuring you that the only difference between the two was the attitude of the heart, one or the other. Whether there was faith involved in the situation or not. And I believe that's why we find his name first. Not only was he, was the, not only was he the first example, but it was the only thing that we, we can actually see from the text was evident in one life and not in the other. That's why Proverbs 21.27 says that the sacrifice of the wicked is detestable. How much more so when it's brought with evil intent? And, and so maybe it was just simply that the heart was wrong with Cain. And even though what he did was pretty, his heart was wrong. 
Make no mistake about it. That's a faith issue. Because I have to trust God is able to see past what I'm actually doing. And there are times that I think we can all look at what we do and go, well, that's really not what I mean. How many of you have answered that question? How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. When what you really mean is I'm doing terrible. I, you know, my, my life's coming unglued right now. But you don't want anybody to know that. You see, God sees past the actual words that you say, and he sees the intent of the heart and the things that are going on behind the scenes. And so that's the issue here uh, with Abel. God, who later would actually accept grain offerings. You remember that became part of the Jewish tradition. It wasn't like he couldn't accept a grain offering or couldn't accept a fruit basket. So there must have been something else that was wrong. And because of it, we find the first murder. You know, it's interesting to me, and I think you need to realize this, that mankind's very first couple produced two kids, and those two kids couldn't get along. should tell you something about boys. If you wonder why you can put them in the back seat of the car and there's nothing going on, uh-uh, uh-huh, uh-uh, uh-huh, did so, uh-uh. Why? Because it's human nature. That's, we're carnally like that in our flesh. That's exactly how we are. And without the work of the Spirit, that's exactly the direction we go. That's what happens to almost all of us. And so it really is an issue of whether we're going to be pleasing to God or not. By the time you get to verse 10 there in Genesis 4, your, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. And, and remember what he said, am I my brother's keeper? I didn't kill him. I don't know what happened. You know, those fierce sheep, they probably did it. Something bad. I don't know what happened. Bad sheep. But we know what Abel did. Abel followed God. Abel followed God and it cost him his life. Abel followed God and he was a victim. Abel followed God and he was falsely persecuted. Abel followed God and it caused the end of his life. A lot of people ask, well, why did it happen? God only knows. I don't know. I've tried for a long time to figure out why this is one of the first stories of human interaction ever recorded. Think about it. One of the very first stories of human interaction beyond the birth of these two boys is their squabbling, their fighting, and ultimately the death of one of them by murder. Now do you understand why Scripture declares, for who can know the heart of man for his deceitful and desperately wicked, and who can know it? That there is none righteous, not one? You would think that Adam and Eve, after their little faux pas in the garden, would have instructed their children pretty well. Amen? Don't you think they would have kind of figured out, well, that didn't work out so good. It was perfect. Things were going along nice. We kind of blew it. Most parents respond to their own sin this way. They try and protect their children from becoming just like them. I can tell you that's true in my life. 
Some of the areas that I have most directly tried to impact my own children's lives are my own areas of weakness and failure. I'm pretty sure Adam and Eve did that. It gives you an idea of how deep it is ingrained within us, that nature to do whatever we want. We need faith to combat that. Abel's life was good. He did his work. As far as we know, he worshipped the Lord. It's said about him that he was commended as a righteous man. You can see that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23. He was commended as a righteous man. By the way, those are the words of Jesus. And I think Jesus probably knew his heart. Abel's life was short, too short. But it was complete as far as God was concerned. What God allows, we don't always have answers for. One of the hardest things in in dealing with, with death while you're on this earth is we don't have all the answers. We don't know why God allows things. We don't have the little minute details of why the Lord allows some, basically, from scriptural point, how come Cain was allowed to prosper and Abel died? How come Cain, who was the sinner of the greatest measure, if you will, and Abel, who was the righteous one, if you will, how come the guy who was the bigger sinner actually seemed to have done better. It should help you with faith. When someone comes to you, I got an email yesterday. Some of you know uh, Jeff and Nina Crossan there in Colorado. And I got an email from Jeff. And somehow a guy with a, with a background in word faith doctrine got into their church and actually ended up leading worship. Didn't find out about that until a little bit later when he started counseling people that were sick that they just didn't have enough faith. And I emailed him back, and one of the things I did is I started in Genesis, and I just started naming all the people that I could find that obviously didn't have enough faith then. Abel, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph. How about Jesus? Did Jesus not have enough faith? Couldn't keep himself from getting killed? How about Stephen, Paul? Faith isn't essential, but faith doesn't save you from bad things. Faith doesn't save you from cancer. You can pray all day long in faith, believing, and you still may die of cancer. Did you hear what I said? God may choose to not heal you. We don't know why he does that. doesn't stop us from praying in faith. But we have to accept the life he gives us by faith, even if it means we get cancer and die. That's hard. It's tough to accept. I've shared with you before, I have physical ailments that I would like God to take away. But God hasn't chosen to take them away. And there are things that affect my ability to minister. God hasn't chosen to take them away. I'd like for him to, and I pray for him to. But in faith, I have to also trust that maybe God's leaving that weakness there for a reason. Maybe God's allowing those seeming inequities in my life to produce something in me that would not otherwise come. Maybe those things that I'm going through that I don't like, that are unfair, they're unjust, maybe those things are the very things I need most. Ever thought of that? It takes faith to think that way.
because you won't get it from your head. You're not going to get it from your friends because they don't want you sick. The only place that comes from is faith in the Lord, that he's sovereign and he knows exactly what he's doing. Trust him with it. I'm not suggesting that we don't pray. We need to pray. And we need to pray without ceasing. And we need to pray fervently and effectively. And we need to pray believing and not wavering. All of those things. But just because God doesn't answer it doesn't mean he hates your guts. Just because God lets something bad happen to you doesn't mean you're in sin. It might. There's a possibility that you're being chastened. But it could mean that you're able. It could mean that for whatever reason God's allowed something to come into your life, maybe he's going to use your life to instruct someone else. Maybe he's going to use your life to show other people how to go through that suffering. Now, we don't like to hear that. But that's the picture that Scripture paints. And for most of it, it applies to almost all of us. I, I don't know anybody. I have yet to meet a Christian who's walked with the Lord for any length of period of time that hasn't gone through things that were unfair, unjust, nonsensical, hurtful, painful, that they didn't understand. Trust God takes faith. Second person, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death and he could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God, the NIV says. Now we find this very strange character, Enoch. And I want you to notice that almost all of these people, except for Abraham and Noah, as you look at their lives, we don't know that much about them. So there's a reason they're there. Enoch is another one of those guys that has tremendous amounts of extrapolation said about his life. I want you to notice something here. It doesn't say where he was taken to. It just says God took him. Be very careful about extrapolating that. Because you can get yourself into a theologic conundrum. Because if he went to heaven, then God took him to heaven without Jesus. That's a scary thing. And that's a thing that flies in the face of most of what the rest of Scripture is about. So God took him. But I think where he took him is the exact same place that he took Abraham that you find in Luke chapter 16, to Abraham's bosom. A lot of people say, no, he took him straight to heaven. Mm, that's not said in Scripture. And I think it's a very dangerous thing to say. Read Luke 16. You'll find the picture there of the rich man and Lazarus, and it actually uses Abraham's bosom as that picture. And if Abraham's there, I can't imagine that Enoch would be someplace different. So... My belief is, is that he was taken to Abraham's bosom to wait for Jesus just like everybody else. But God took him. Enoch is the next example. Genesis 5 gives us a little bit. Uh, Jared, believed one, uh, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. And Enoch, and he, as he begot Enoch, Jared lived another uh, 800 years. And so you have a guy here that lives 962 years. That's a long time. That, I mean, AARP would have been broke. 
trying to provide him with Medicare benefits. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And Enoch lived 65 years, begot Methuselah. So he's going to actually be the father of Methuselah, who's going to be the oldest guy we find in the Bible. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God for 300 years, had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. He was just a pup. I mean, he was a young guy at 365. I mean, that's just like... He was he, barely out of puberty, actually. 365 years old. I mean, it, it's, this, is, this was a young guy then, because people were living nearly a thousand years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so we have a man, can you imagine his life? Uh, Enoch is a very popular figure, and you've probably heard of late, I shared with you a little bit about the Gospel of Barnabas. The Gospel of Barnabas quotes from the Gospels of Enoch, and there are three of them. Uh, they're part of what are called the pseudepigrapha or pseudepigraphal books, and that simply means written under an assumed name. And so they're books that were never brought into the canon of Scripture. The only difference with the book of Enoch is it's one of the rare few of the pseudepigrapha that were actually quoted in the Old Testament, quoted specifically in the book of Joel, and it had to do with Enoch. And so it was interesting that those books uh, were such a huge part of the early church. The early church for about 300 years uh, quoted from the books of Enoch. And one of the reasons that they are so valuable, because they, they're primarily a history and they're primarily the writings of Enoch's life. Uh, that's what those books happen to be. But there are a number of references to a lot of things that we know were just simply speculation as well. And so they were never canonized into Scripture. Uh, it was uh, around 400 or so A.D. that it was very clear at the Council of Laodicea uh, that those books were not actually to be considered inspired, but they were rather mostly historical. So it doesn't mean that they were false. It just simply means that they weren't inspired. So you need to really... Uh, understand that. So when the book of Joel quotes, it's quoting on the basis of the fact that what is quoted is true, not necessarily that it was inspired. It would be like you and I sitting here talking about uh, what color the sky is. The sky is blue. Well, that's not necessarily found in Scripture, but it's still true. And so it's important to understand that there is a book floating around out there that has come into quite some renown of late uh, there, was a, there was a serious search for all three books of Enoch. Uh, they were written probably around 200 B.C. And so the interesting thing that happened when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, uh, specifically in Cave 4, there were seven copies of the books of Enoch. And so in there, wonderfully, is the passage that's quoted in the book of Joel from the Old Testament. And so they kind of give a a picture that these things had been as they are for a long time. That particular scroll was dated to about 205 B.C. And so as Joel quotes that, it adds authenticity to the book of Joel. It also adds authenticity to the life of Enoch. And so uh, wonderful tidbits of history. In the book of Enoch, in the 68th chapter, in the first verse, it says this, And after that, My great-grandfather Enoch gave me all the secrets in the book and the parables which had been given to him, and he put them together for me in words, and these were the book of parables. And so it kind of gives a picture, in essence, of some of the things that were contained inside of the book of Enoch. And so 
by the time the the famous English explorer James Bruce actually goes to Ethiopia to what was then Abyssinia and finds uh, four copies. Those copies were actually in Ethiopic at the time. Uh, he takes them back to England. They're translated, and then some 400 years later almost, or excuse me, 300 years later, uh, the, the caves in Qumran yield up what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there, lo and behold, uh, written in Aramaic uh, is the apocryphal or the pseudepigraphal book of Enoch. And so Enoch was a strange, strange character who did not see death. Now, here's why his life is important. Because when we look at his life, you're kind of going, okay, he didn't see death. One day, we're all going to disappear from this earth. And if it says of Enoch, he walked with God and was not, where did he go? So by faith, that's how we believe that there's something after this life. Amen? Enoch was one of those guys. He wasn't wandering around, boy, I hope God gives me this or God gives me that. He wasn't, you know praying a, a prayer of someone who is a word faith guy, just, well, I'm going to get this and get that. He just simply believed God. And because he believed God, God took him. And so we have the promise that when we believe the Lord for who he is and we walk with God and we're pleasing to him, that the net result of that is God takes us. And so he was a picture of our belief that there is something after this life. And you know what? Nobody's been there and come back. Irregardless of all the books that are out there, it says, yeah, I spent 30 seconds in heaven, or I spent 49 seconds in heaven. There's something about heaven, like every other week, a new book comes out. My dog went to heaven and I chased him there. Or, you know, my, my cat is satanic and I know of demons because of it or whatever. There's all kinds of people that claim to have had an afterlife experience or where they went somewhere and they came back. But the fact of the matter is, nobody's actually been where God is, because to see God is to die. No man can see God and live, is what Scripture declares. And so they didn't go where God is, and because Jesus set the captives free that were in Sheol, every one of those guys is now in heaven, so the only place you could go as a believer would be heaven. And if you went there in a, in a body that wasn't suited, in an unredeemed state, that would be the end OU. So Enoch is a type of a person like us who waits for eternal things by faith. Verse 6, very, very important verse. I would encourage you to draw a line, a box around it, highlight it right in the margins. You need to know this, Jeff. Insert your name. And without faith... It is impossible, notice what it says, impossible, doesn't say improbable, doesn't say kind of, sort of, maybe for some people it's okay. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The phrase to please God can also be translated to walk with God. Same exact word in Greek. So to please God is to walk with God, or to please God is to abide with God. To please God is to be in God's presence is another way to look at it. It is impossible to do that without faith. It can't be done. Why am I emphasizing this? Because a lot of people try and live their life with the Lord just like they work just like they clean house, 
just like they do their favorite vocation, avocation, recreation, ation of some kind. A lot of people believe that God is simply an intellectual exercise or a philosophical exercise. Without faith, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, without that, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So two qualifications for the person who walks by faith. And without that faith, it's impossible to walk with God. Hear this, it's extremely important. Because you must believe that he exists. Believing that he exists means that he's real. He's not just some guy in a book that's kind of nice to think about because everybody wants something to exist beyond the world that we live in. God is real. He exists. And here's why that's important. If he exists and he is who he says he is, then we owe him our allegiance. He's the boss. We're not. He calls the shots. We don't. You must believe that he is. For he is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. He is that. We believe that as a Christian. And without faith, which is substantive, without faith, which is evidentiary, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So it's not just blind faith that we're talking about. It's not wishful thinking. It's substantive. It's evidentiary. And without that, in other words, if your faith produces nothing, you don't believe. And without believing, you're not saved. And you can't please God. So if your faith produces nothing because it's not substantive and evidentiary, then you need to check and see what kind of faith you have, because it's not biblical faith. Might be wishful thinking. Could be head knowledge. If your faith doesn't produce something, you need to check and see why. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, when it says rewards, guess what kind it's referring to? It's not little gold coins like in a video game. Yeah, I got the level six and I got 18 gold coins. No, it's the promise of heaven. It may not be here in the here and now. It might be in the hereafter. No one, not Abel, not Enoch, nor anyone else, it's an absolute requirement, has ever been able to have a right relationship with God without faith. And that faith causes us to believe that he is. And if we believe that he is, we do something with it. And if we do something with it, guess what? You're going to get rewarded. You're going to take that last breath and you're going to say, Thank you, Jesus. And draws here from the, really from the example of Enoch. Before a relationship could happen with God, he obviously had to believe that God existed. Amen? 
Can you have a relationship with someone or something that you do not think exists? I would say to you, if you can, we need to seek medical help for you tonight. Because you can't have a relationship, in other words, your life intertwined with their life or that thing, unless you believe that that thing exists, amen? We would call that insanity to do any other way. Yeah, well, he believes something's there, but it's not there. You see, in this case, we believe that God is, and we act on it. In other words, we are obedient to his word. We do what it says. We live our lives according to his principles. We're no longer walking the way we used to walk. You see, all of those things are the substance. They're evidence. We believe that he is. We trust that that Jesus died on Calvary's cross and gave his life for us. And the result of that is those that believe in him, yet though they die, they will live. So one day I know I'm going to take my last breath. I am absolutely certain I'm going to die. I am actually more certain that I'm going to die than I'm going to live. Isn't that weird? But think about it for a second. You don't have any idea how much longer you're going to live, but I guarantee you, you are going to die. You're going to die. You're going to be absent from this body. With the Lord or without the Lord? That's the question. And so, that's substance. That's the real deal. And when I believe He is, I'm looking forward to the reward. I'm saying, God, when this earthly life is over, I know because of who you are, Remember, we talked about his character, his nature, all of those things that we believe he is. Go through your Bible and mark the promises of God. Whether he's making them to the children of Israel or whether he's making them to the church, he's making them to humankind, and God keeps his promises. There may be some that are unique to the children of Israel, but if you just simply mark the promises that are in your Bible, and then you sit there and say to yourself, These are mine. A lot of those things aren't going to happen in this life. But they're going to happen. Because God promised them. And he can't lie. And he can't deceive. And without faith, it's impossible to walk with God or please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God assures us that if we seek, we will find The phrase here, earnestly seek, and I want to really focus in on this for just a moment. To earnestly seek is to use your whole mind, heart, soul, and strength. And the reason I used mine first is because that's the one that a lot of Christians go, well, I just don't want to use, you know, if I think about it, then I might come up with something that I don't really like to think about. St. Augustine was one of the very few people in the early church that would actually go so far as to believe that you could actually think about God and have a reasonable faith. Family of God, you can think about God and have a reasonable faith. Faith and reason do not have to be separated. But don't ever make reason your faith. And know exactly what I just said. There are people who don't actually have faith. They simply have reason. There's been an argument that's been presented. It seems like it's the better of the two arguments. And because it's the better of the two arguments, they accept the argument. That is not faith. 
That's just simply a well-placed argument. That's simply reason. Faith must be tested. Faith must be outside of what you can know. Otherwise, it's not faith. It has to go beyond what you can know. But it doesn't mean that you throw out what you know. They get to peacefully coexist. Faith always takes precedence over reason. When you come to a place where you cannot reason it together, as God says, then you accept it by faith, believing what God has said about that situation in his word. It is so important for us to understand these things as the body of Christ, because there's a lot of people I think are going to be shocked when they wake up after their last breath and they're not in heaven. Because as an intellectual exercise, it seemed to be a better argument, and that's their definition of belief. If you don't come upon things you can't understand and can't explain, and you have to accept because it's, it's just what God said, then I would suggest to you that you need to check your faith quotient in your life. Because there are things I cannot fully explain to you that I have to accept as a pastor. I can give you all kinds of little nifty analogies of the Trinity, but I cannot fully explain how God exists fully as God in three persons. I can give you some pretty lengthy explanations on that. How I can have Christ's life accounted as my life, and I am justified me just as if I had never sinned, when in fact I sin today. You see, there's things that we have to believe that God does. They require faith. They require me knowing him. That's how I know I have a right relationship with him. If you ever get to the place, and I'm going to say something some of you are going to hate, where you think you know everything there is to know about God, be very afraid. Be very, very afraid. Because when you reach that place, you don't need faith anymore. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. I can tell you, there are, I, sometimes, I've read that passage 50 times and I've never seen that. And I pour through, you know, commentary after commentary. I Google it. I go to iBible, you know. They don't know either. What kind of theologians are these? And I just have to accept it. God said it. I believe it, and that's good enough. I may not have all the answers. And I'm kind of thankful at times, man, I don't know what that is. But I know he said it. And if he said it, I'm good with it. Leaves me needing more faith, not less. 900 years after Augustine would say that I believe in order to understand. That's what he said. He said, I believe in order to understand. I believe. Notice what's first. I believe in order to understand. Thomas Aquinas would write these things with the same intent and purpose. He said that reason, while marred in sin, can know God through arguments and proof. God gave us minds which should be developed and used 
To ignore intellectual growth is to live a stunted and naive life. For God wants both our faith and our trust and our knowledge. For while even we ponder and wonder about so many matters that are mysteries to us, God has spoken to us. He has not only spoken to our minds, but he has spoken to our hearts and our will. And he's spoken through Jesus Christ as Lord. For we do not believe in a void. We do not leap into the dark. For our faith is reasonable, although reason alone cannot produce faith. You've got to have faith. Verse 7. For by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen. Now think about that statement all by itself. Here's Noah. He's not exactly a spring chicken. God warns him on a planet that had never seen rain that it was going to rain. Moreover, that it was going to rain so much that the world was going to be flooded. And he begins for 120 years to build a boat in his front yard. And not just any boat the largest boat that had ever been seen. A boat big enough to house all of the animals that existed on the earth and a pretty good chunk of mankind if they wanted to go. You talk about faith. You talk about suffering for year upon year and time after, you know, here come Noah's neighbors every day. So, hey, Noah, how's the boat going? Where are you going to launch that puppy? How are you planning on steering that box? You know, I mean, it, the, the, the jokes that you could make about Noah and his endeavor are endless. There have been movies made about Noah's life. And they're pretty funny, actually, because when you think about it, it's like, are you kidding me? You talk about faith. You, you see... Then it goes on to say, with godly fear. Notice that. Reason doesn't necessarily cause godly fear. Faith causes godly fear. Reason doesn't do that. Reason says, eh, God's invisible. He didn't do anything last week to me, so he's not going to do anything this week. I know he said that, but he said it 2,000 years ago, and he still hasn't done it, so maybe he didn't mean it. You see, that's reason. Faith says, I don't know when God's justice and judgment is going to fall. Faith says, I'm not sure when these things are going to catch up with me. And because I believe that God is a just God, his word declares that, I'm going to do what he says. And I'm going to have a little bit of godly fear. There's nothing wrong with having some fear of God. You guys okay with that? You should be. Because you really should have a little healthy dose of, of the fear of the Lord. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning, Scripture declares, of wisdom. It actually gives you the ability to use knowledge correctly or rightly. You see, a lot of people, because they don't fear God, don't have a lot of wisdom. They do a lot of dumb things. And we can see that in our world very clearly today. Some of the things that we're arguing over in this country, I didn't believe I would ever live long enough to see. Honestly. From where we were when I was a teenager to where we are today, with what's on television compared to what was on television then, you know, I'm still Andy of Mayberry. I'm looking at Opie in the fishing pole and going, yeah, buddy. 
I'm not so much on on who's not married to whom, producing children with whom, and whoever else, and the rest of their gang. I look at that and I go, how sad is that? When we're actually debating whether contraception is a right that the taxpayers should pay for. Please. That needs to be debated in the public square. I'm pretty sure most husbands and wives can figure that out for themselves. And I don't believe it's the government's job to pay for it. You you see, there's a lot of things that when we look at our world, we kind of almost need the same kind of faith Noah had because it looks bad. It's like, man, this world is coming unraveled. This is insane. How can it get any worse? Do you realize that the Bible declares this about Noah's time? That God looked upon the earth and it was continually evil? That's all he could say about the earth at the time. And so he gives this example, and we'll end here tonight. I knew we weren't going to get very far, but I did think it was farther than this. At least my notes indicate so. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Again, the only way to make things right is faith. It's the, the world is a mess, and the world's still a mess. As God divinely knows, you know, you can read this whole, it's actually three chapters in the book of Genesis, chapters 6 through 9. It's almost three of those four. But when you read the account of Noah's life, you read the account of what God did, it had never rained before. I mean, all of this stuff was new ground. This was the, God watered the earth by dew. It just, he just got up and your plants were nicely moist. And God's saying, no, I'm going to destroy the earth by flood. Can you imagine what people were thinking as Noah's saying that? He's going, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and uh, I got the London Bridge, too. I'd like to sell you that. And uh, God promises uh, that he would bring all the animals to Noah. Can you imagine that promise? You know, he's like the camel whisperer. Sure, let's go get some. You can imagine the jokes that are people playing on Noah. You know, it's like, okay, let's go get a bunch of animals and dump them off at his house and see what happens. Because he says all the animals are going to come to him. But Noah believed God. He was moved with godly fear. He trusted that God was saying exactly what he meant. That's hard, isn't it? Family of God, your, your friends and your family that don't know Jesus are going to hell. Do you believe God for that? It's what his word says. Do you believe God for that? You better. Because he's not kidding. He's not playing around. And I don't say that to shock anybody or, or to put undue pressure on you to share the gospel. That's the reality of walking by faith. If you believe what God said, then his word says to exit this earth without Jesus Christ used to perish. It's the same thing that Noah had to deal with. God, are you sure? I mean, I've got some, you know, some of my family, they're not all that bad. Some of my neighbors. I mean, yeah, sure, they have a few beers every once in a while, and they, they do watch 
UFC, but, you know, it's, I mean, they're other than that, they're good. You get the picture? You understand what I'm trying to say to you? It would be really easy for us to look at our world and go, no, he's not going to take that guy's life. I mean, he'll never go to hell. She'll never go to hell. God didn't mean that about them. I mean, after all, the Buddhists, I mean, they're really nice. I mean, the Dalai Lama's books, they're fantastic. You know, think about all the people that have preached peace. All the people have been pacifists, and they just basically loved everybody. I mean, how can anyone hate a Hare Krishna? I mean, after all, to shave their head and put it in a ponytail and to clack little symbols at the airport, that takes a lot of guts. Surely God can't want them to go to hell. I mean, they're just crazy. Do you understand? You see how your mind can begin to get in the middle of all of this, and all of a sudden you start picking who's okay and who's not? Noah had to believe God. God said, I'm killing everybody that doesn't get in that boat that you're a little slow building. You need to kind of speed it up a little bit here. Get on the job. I've wondered sometimes whether Noah actually took the 120 years, kind of trying to drag it out. I don't think so. I think God was that patient. I think he's that long-suffering. And I think Noah got up and preached that same message every day. His devotions were filled with it. His family heard it. They probably got sick of it. Can you imagine the kids? I know, I know, Dad's going to rain. Okay, we're going to get some more lumber. How big is this thing? You want it to be 40 cubits, but what? What are you putting in there, an elephant? Yep, two of them. Some rhinos. All the families just looked at him like, oh man. Woo! <laughs> Remember, Noah's life wasn't exactly stellar, was it? The dude's pounding back the wine. He's getting drunk. Everybody's like, oh, cover up that. He's going at it again. The reason I'm telling you this is human people with lots of flaws and weaknesses can still have a bunch of faith. You should take comfort in that. It's not about being perfect. It's about possessing faith. It's about trusting God. It's about walking with Him. It's about believing even the hard things. It's about doing the right things. The substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's hard at times. Noah's day was flooded with two great things that were bad. God's judgment and ultimately the flood that came from that judgment. But it was also flooded with two things that were good. It was His grace and His mercy. Because He was still then not willing that any should perish. And until the day it rained, Scripture said, God was crying out, just get in the ark. I've often wondered what the scene looked like on the gangplank of that great ship. And quite honestly, it was nothing more than a box, okay? That's all it was. Noah wasn't out there trying to figure out the camber of the ribs so that they, you know, drafted water properly or could steer the thing. It was just a box. But it was sealed up. 
Have you ever wondered what kept the water out for all that time? It was covered. Just like you're covered. It was covered with pitch. And in our case, we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. And unless you're covered, you're in trouble. If you accepted the covering, if you by faith got in the boat, you were okay. But without faith, you died. Same thing still true today. No faith, you're in trouble. All the reason. I've often wondered how many people thought at that time, well, I'll just grab a tree. I mean, he's building a ship. Why can't I? I mean, there's trees around here. If it really rains, I'll just grab a log, float around. You know, elephants can swim. Hippos can swim. We'll just, you know, ride them around for a while. I mean, how deep can it get? You see, a lot of this could have gone on, amen? Trying to figure out what God was or was not going to mean or was or was not going to do. God was very specific. It's going to rain. I'm going to cover the earth with water. Everybody's going, oh, no. What he really means is it's going to get wet. It's going to get muddy. What he really means is it's going to kind of get like waist deep. And we'll be able to wait around for a while, a couple of weeks, and it'll dry out. Sure, we're going to be kind of soggy, but it's all going to be fine. That is exactly mankind today. I'll give my life to Jesus when I get old and I can't do anything fun. As soon as God shows me a sign, I'll believe in God. The moment they discover life on Mars, I'll believe in God. God would never, ever let anybody die and burn in hell. That's just, you know, that, that's kind of more of a metaphor. I'm thinking the people in Noah's time understood very clearly that God was not speaking in metaphors. Don't mistake God's justice and judgment. It takes faith to believe that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And there's some things that he said he's going to do that I don't really want to happen. One day he's coming back to take possession of this, his earth. And he's going to wipe out everyone on this earth that does not believe in him. Fortunately, he's coming back from heaven with those of us who do believe. We need faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the precious promises of your word and Lord probably every one of us can think of somebody right now who needs you and Lord if we really believe that one day you're coming again if we really believe that there's a heaven and we're going there then it requires that we have some action in our life with that faith Lord help us to share our faith help us to be your witnesses while we're on this earth Help us to be as bold as Noah, as believing as Enoch, and as faithful as Abel. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Increase our faith, God. Help us to walk by faith. Help us to not deceive ourselves with just sight. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.